Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 17 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. Today, we're going to discuss the most interesting announcements that came out of the Microsoft Ignite conference. And to help us navigate this part of the Datascape, I'm inviting Warner Chavez back to the show. Hey, Warner, how are you doing? Hey, how's it going, Chris? It's great to be back navigating that data escape, especially for such a special occasion once a year for Ignite. <laughs> great. And it's, gl- it's great to have you back to the show. Now, uh, I also invited a f- new first-timer to the show. His name is Sunil Sahi. Hey, Sunil, how are you doing? How are you doing, Chris? Thank you, and thank you for welcoming me to this podcast. It's fantastic. Great. And why don't we, uh, Warner has been a regular on the podcast, but in case you're just joining us for the first time or two, Warner, can you give us a brief overview of your career? Absolutely. So I'll do the three sentence version. So I've been working with Microsoft Data Platform for 10 years. I am currently a principal consultant at Pythian, and I'm honored to be a Microsoft Data Platform MVP. Great. And Sunil, can you give us a brief overview of your career so the audience can get to know you? Sure. 20 years in the uh, IT business, 15 years in the consulting business. Got a lot of wounds and whips and done through many uh, loopholes from being a director, solution architect, etc., developer, engineer. So I had a lot of various experiences, been in the Microsoft space for my whole career. Okay, great. So is that is that 15 plus 20 equaling 35 years in IT or is that 15 plus 5 equaling 20? 15 plus 5. 15 in consulting specifically, and then 20 plus in IT. Okay, I was going to say, you don't have enough gray hair for the the 35. (laughs) (laughs) But stick around, I'm sure we can give you a few. Um, (laughs) All right, so let's start with, uh, for those of us, and I'm one of them, who have never been to Microsoft Ignite, gentlemen, can you tell, why don't you start by just describing what it is and giving us an overview of what the Microsoft Ignite experience is? Okay, so... My my feeling here is I've been going to these type of events from, I know people remember they used to call it tech ed back in the early 2000s, and it continues to be phenomenal experience. It is just, as you, as you see over time, the number of people attending these events, the technology that's being dispersed, it is the mecca of Microsoft conferences. I, I thoroughly enjoy it every time I feel re-energized every time I go to these events. It's uh, fantastic to meet the people, the technologies, and the industries that are involved in this. It's incredible. Okay. Now, you were at the Microsoft Inspire conference this year as well, right? Correct. Correct. And that's built more to the sales side versus more what I call more of a technical focus for people who are building the different various technologies. Okay. Okay. So uh, was there a theme this year of, of the Ignite conference? I think, I think the biggest thing is you, you, when you go through this, it is building an ecosystem that's hybrid for Microsoft platform. And they're opening this up to various different technologies, whether it's from, you used to not hear about Linux. Now you've got SQL on Linux, for example. So you've got hybrid, you've got choice, you've got security. There's a whole spectrum that they have an ecosystem of built out. It's fantastic. It's growing and it continues to evolve. And if you see over the over time, it's be evolving. This ecosystem continues to grow upon that. Okay. And Warner, what about you? Did you see, did you see the same theme or is that what you saw? 
I, I find the biggest value for me out of Ignite is to see Microsoft's public roadmap, let's say, for about the next year. This is usually pretty much what they show at Ignite. And there's there's certain amounts of things that they show behind the scenes for MVPs, for example, they're all under NDA kind of thing. And then you start to see them unveiling slowly uh, to the general public and big events such as Ignite. To me, the most interesting part is that, is to see uh, the stuff that they actually show to the public, because then you know that's the stuff that they either is, you know, right in, in around the corner coming out or that they, once they make an announcement public, it's, it's a hard commitment to actually make it a reality, right? And usually company does not want to do a 180 on something they've already announced publicly. Yeah. So that's really the biggest interesting part for me is to see uh, the things that are kind of, they kind of solidify at Ignite. You know, once something has been announced at Ignite, it kind of like makes it into like, okay, so this is going to happen. It is a big deal. So that's that's the part that I see that it's that is very interesting. In terms of a strategy and, and the theme, like Sunil was saying, big push on hybrid, that's for sure. And I know we're going to talk deeper into this, but for example, the fact that they're actually starting to ship Azure Stack, it's it's a huge gamble on hybrid. And we'd have to see how it's going to play out. Open source is, a, it's crazy how much you would think that uh, we would have been talking about open source products at a Microsoft conference about how to do stuff with uh, Hadoop or so many different Apache projects that you can run now in Azure, how uh, SQL on Linux, like uh, Sunil was saying. Five years ago, it would have been unfathomable that we would have been talking about all these open source products in such a big, you know, big space and big percentage of a Microsoft show. No, right. 100% agree with you. Right. Okay. So in some of the conferences, like uh, in the Oracle Open World Conference, you know, Simon told me you can off, you can, which happens each year, Simon told me you, you can usually tell who Oracle is feeling threatened by or who they're going after in the next year. Do you see that in the, in, uh, in the Ignite conference? I didn't see any direct references, really. What I see is Microsoft really wanting really hard to sway the open source crowd into trying out Azure. And I think they know that there's a big chunk of the open source crowd that comes with preconceived notions of not wanting to do business with Microsoft, which is, you know, we can debate all the way here and tomorrow uh, about the valid validity of, of that stance, obviously, but they know that it's kind of an uphill battle. So I, I see them pushing really hard, investing on trying to change those those minds. Right, right. It, it, other you know other publications I read on the on the subject said the theme was really choice for Ignite, and I mm, I, I agree. A really good way to put it. Yeah, I think that was InfoWorld that that said that they had a really good write up about it. Yeah, no, the the choices is just you know on the different technologies they're giving you on prem, cloud, and hybrid all of those different caveats because they know organizations have built up their data centers over these last few decades and they're not just be able to flip the cloud instantaneously. So it's right. going to be a, it's going to be a move and shift. So on the theme of choice, Azure Stack was formally announced. Um, it's been in like a community preview for, I don't know, almost two years. I know it was pushed back uh, significantly and uh, Microsoft has now formally announced it with a couple of hardware partners. What do you guys think of uh, the announcement of Azure Stack? Uh, we'll start with you, Warner. I think it's a big gamble, and I, uh, I'm sure Microsoft has done their market research to see or, or make sure that there's a, you know, a good percentage to, uh, to pay off the gamble because you kind of have to wonder what's the market for people that want to put these you know, cloud-like appliances in their data center instead of just going to the cloud, right? 
I mean, I understand the 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 benefit or kind of like the the value prop. We say, well, we'll sell you this appliance. You start using it. It looks like the cloud. You can use many of the same concepts and advantages that the cloud has, like you know, infrastructure as code, all these API-based provisioning systems, and so on. And when you're ready to go to the cloud, actually, all your code that was working against the APIs in Azure Stack is going to work against the API that's actually in the real Azure data center. But I, I have to question, are there enough businesses in the world to make this enterprise profitable that are interested in this and that wouldn't just go to the cloud instead, right? So I'm sure there's a few businesses that would be interested in it, but that doesn't drive a ginormous project such as this that includes hardware vendors and moving appliances, moving stock of really expensive hardware, right? Right. So we'll see. I, we'll see. Yeah, I think the... I think there are some very specific scenarios where this can be used and maybe it's, and that's maybe the push of why it's, it's being put in there is for situations for maybe a government that needs to have this not connected to the cloud, or maybe it's, you know, places like for ships that don't have high internet connectivity or places where you have a lot of latency. And I think this is going to complete the, the platform for Microsoft for these specific situations. Buy but that may be only for very small segment of the user population. As you said, it's it may not be for the mass market. Most people will just utilize the Azure Cloud, as you're saying. I think that's the likely scenario. But there's some specific, very specific, and I think that's why the demand for this is for certain a certain maybe governments, military, those type of situations where they might have that. Right, right. Yeah. There's another factor also keep in mind is, is and, and this is kind of like, we don't really know what the conversations are behind the scenes, but if you think about it, Azure Stack becomes the differentiator compared to the other two big competitors in terms of public cloud, right? There's no AWS in a box that I can buy. There's no GCP in a box that I can buy. And there's very unlikely that they're going to put it out there because, you know, neither AWS nor Google were in the you know, server business before. Microsoft is not in the server manufacturing business, but they surely are in the server software business, right? right. In the on-prem server software business. Right. So I wonder if there's value that Azure Stack has just by existing, right? Because right. we know this, very, we know this uh, from many of our clients, the, the possibility of using something opens up many things that the clients are willing to do, even if they don't actually go through with it, right? For example, a client says, oh, I don't want to go into Azure because then I'm locked in to running in your cloud. And then Microsoft says, you're not locked in. If you ever want to move back on-prem, we'll sell you an Azure Stack machine and you migrate all of your cloud assets into Azure Stack. Now, the chances of a client actually going through with doing that are very, very low. But the fact that the possibility exists can be you know a factor in deciding to go to Azure because there is no such possibility with AWS or with GCP. There is no appliance right. that I can buy if I want to migrate from cloud back to on-prem with minimal disruption. Right now, what, now when Azure Stack was first announced, it was uh, not tied to a, a hardware vendor. And when I look at this announcement, it is tied to a specific. It looks like appliance, and I could be wrong here. Uh, but it looks it like it's, it's it's a tied to several appliances, which I think is a mistake. It it takes that openness away from you know just throwing it on some hardware that has enough RAM. 
do you think what 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 do you think about their decision to go from anything that met you know 100 gigs of ram and certain criteria to you now have to buy this specific appliance from lenovo dell hp or what what have you yeah well obviously it would be nice if they would just say you can do this on commodity hardware but i find it's also very difficult to be able to say you know we want this baseline of performance and we're just going to trust that our clients implement and configure the whole thing properly right and then the problem is that and we know this the same thing like sunil myself you we, we know this all the time people will just let's use sql server as an example people run sql server on a you know super underpowered machine and then they go on the internet and they complain that sql server doesn't scale Right. So imagine if they released <laughs> yeah. Azure Stack, people go in, they put it on a they put it on VMware. They wouldn't even put it on a physical machine. Some people would do that. They would put Azure Stack on VMware on top of something else. Yeah, and then right. they would go on the internet and say, Oh, Azure Stack sucks. And then the worst part is that they would burn their whole Azure concept uh, experience, right? They might not even want to try the cloud after that. So Yes, it's not ideal that you can't just do it on any commodity hardware that you buy, but I can see where they want to try to protect and make sure that the experience that people have with it is at least, you know, positive to begin with. Right. And they want to make, I think there's also certifications, uh, regulatory reasons that they might have to have certain packages of certain hardware as well. So that might be one of the main reasons why they did it this way. Agreed. It is a downside, but it might be something that they just have to do. Well, and on that note, I mean, maybe they, they, they're, I mean, <laughs> the cloud, the public cloud in general is got, has got to be affecting hardware resellers. So maybe they just wanted to throw a bone to some of their favorite, you know, hardware to encourage some sales, right? Just, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't 100%. have any statistics to back this up, but I'm sure that hardware sales are, are down uh, because of the public cloud. Uh, let's let's we, we've uh, I think we've covered Azure Stack and there's so many great announcements. Let's let's keep rolling here. Uh, one of the other announcements I found intriguing is that Microsoft announced a database migration tool, which they kind of talked about before. But like Warner said, they solidify uh, things in the, by making them public at the at the conference. Sunil, what did you think about the uh, Azure database migration service? Okay, I think it's. Uh... This is a pretty phenomenal stage. I think it's what I call the next evolution for moving data sources to the cloud from various different platforms. So they're trying to make it easy for you to move your your previous data sources to Azure SQL or Azure different platforms. And it's going to be something that's going to be, you know, we have all these databases that have been all over these data centers for various, you know, for five, 10, 15 years, whatever the case may be. Now they're they're gonna make it easy for you to move your data to the cloud. And they're now putting services and, and dollars behind it to make it you know frictionless for you to do this. Make it easy for you to do this. Okay. While as other so I think it's it's a huge benefit to the industry to make it easy for us to do this and, and speed. And they're actually even introducing devices that, you know, instead of just doing uploads of data where you just upload the data through the, the wire they'll they'll ship you a 100 terabyte device to you rent it out put your data on that ship it to uh, microsoft and they'll let you upload it there very quickly exactly. very efficiently yeah right so it's going to speed this up over time this is going to evolve and one way you can look at this is if you look at email from the past it, it's now gone to 
in the cloud, you know, Office 365, et cetera. Sure. So people have moved. So I think the same dynamic is going to take place here on the database side. One of the interesting things when we were, I was in a, a private session with industry leaders and the back uh, SQL team, and one of the key thing, messages that came out of that uh, discussion was previously people were about worried about moving their data to the cloud. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to see people moving the likely scenario in three years from now is why are you not in the cloud? Like the shift of thinking now is going to shift from being on-prem to being in the cloud with your databases to a large extent is what the message came out of that meeting. Okay. Um, now, now, uh, but uh, so is this not Microsoft continuing to play catch up? I mean, AWS announced a service like this about at least three years ago. You could just plug in their service and it would migrate. I don't know how much it would do for you, but the idea was about making it easy. What sets Microsoft's migration tool apart from their competitors? Right so, now, nothing, really. I mean, they need to mature it. That's the thing. They had to come up with something, though. It's like what you just said. They're behind. They're playing catch-up on this. They're playing catch-up on many things with AWS. They didn't have a migration service, which AWS obviously did and, and does have for a long time. And, and the worst part was, uh, at least in terms of Azure, uh, the worst part is that even migrating SQL Server to Azure SQL database was not a frictionless experience. You would think it would be a one-button frictionless experience, and unfortunately, it's not. It is going to be now with the investment of these new services, both the migration services and the managed instance. Now, the moment that these two services go GA and they really start to polish them, then the migration experience of taking an on-prem SQL Server to Azure is going to improve, like, 10 times to what it is today, right? right? So that is truly catch up. Now, in terms of, you know, what is the big difference with what the other competitors are doing? Really, the, the difference is that they had to get it out. They had to be running in Azure. They had to remove all this friction because otherwise they're, you know, they're losing business. They're losing business to people that will just find it easier to right. migrate SQL to SQL VMs in AWS because keep in mind, and this is something that that we see all the time is that for the vast majority of people that are looking at the cloud, so many of them don't look past infrastructure services. They just think I'm going to lift and shift my data center. And this is a problem that the IT industry has at large in terms of the messaging is that they have made it sound like running in the cloud, just running in the cloud means instant savings, right? So people take their, their data center designs that they have on-prem and they lift and shift them to infrastructure services on, on any provider. And then usually the bill is actually bigger than if they were running them on-prem, right? Right, right. Um, right. So, so the, the friction is, is, is something that they need to remove, especially to move them to past services, get rid of the infrastructure piece. Because once you start comparing past services, AWS doesn't look as far away from Azure as it looks when you compare infrastructure services, which is where AWS has a big advantage and Microsoft has been playing catch up for a long time because Azure didn't start with infrastructure, right? And whereas AWS has started that way. Right, okay. So what about the, you mentioned Warner, Azure SQL managed uh, instances. What What is that and how does it compare to say, a you know the, the PaaS offering from Azure or, or AWS? Well, compared to the past, so the past offering in AWS for SQL Server is just basically a SQL VM that has some automation built in, and 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 that's it, right? It's RDS. The real pass is is Azure SQL Database and now Azure SQL Managed Instance. And the Managed Instance, the big difference is that it uses the concept of instance just how it 
it exists on-prem. It doesn't use the concept of database, which is an isolated container. The concept of instance means, for example, the multiple databases that you are used to talking to each other on-prem, they will translate as is to the cloud, which doesn't happen today, and it requires quite a bit of refactoring. Now, obviously, Microsoft saw this, again, this friction, because why should I have to refactor my instance in order to put it in the past in the cloud? They saw it and they recognized it and they said, you know what, we're going to do this a little bit different. We're going to also put another model, which is the managed instance, and it's going to be a lot easier for people to migrate to the managed instance. Now, the cool thing about the managed instance is that it's still the PaaS framework and fabric under the covers. So it's not like, oh, I'm SQL 2016 and I'm migrating to a managed SQL 2016 instance in the cloud, like it would be for, let's say, RDS if I was in, in, using Amazon. I would be migrating from SQL 2016 to SQL 2016 running on RDS, right? Managed Instance is Azure SQL Database. It is the Azure SQL Database bits under the covers. So it means it, it benefits from all the, you know, the, the cloud-first model of development that Microsoft uses now, where, you know, two weeks ago, they enabled uh, some new stuff on Azure SQL Database, right? They do this all the time. So once you migrate it to Azure Managed Instance, even though it's an instance, under the covers, this is the Azure SQL database model. You're going to get, you know, permanent patching, permanent upgrading, new features enabled all the time. It's just, you know, really, really yeah. cool in my opinion. Four nines, SLA, high availability implementation, disaster recovery implementation, all these things, the geo redundancy built into it. So it's fantastic. So what kind of demand are you guys seeing from your customers for this uh, type of service? I, I think it's going to be a big driver for people to move out of uh, SQL on VMs. 100% in the sense of it's going to make it, because you can do it so smoothly, it's going to be a high demand for customers to do this type of uh, migration work. Okay. Well, uh, only time will tell. Obviously, Microsoft feels that there is a demand for it or they wouldn't have invested so heavily into it. And uh, yeah, I think I can, the business, the use case I'm seeing is, you know, that, that company that doesn't really have much for IT or doesn't have a DBA and they do have some, a database or a few handful of databases that they don't want to invest in management and they don't want to necessarily hire a managed services type of a uh, separate company and they just want Microsoft to do it for them. So it makes sense. So SQL 2017 was officially released and uh, it, you know it's been in community preview for a while. So we saw SQL 27 released. It's just on the heels of SQL 2016. Warner, what's exciting about SQL Server 2017? Well, the biggest reason why SQL 2017 exists is because they wanted to have it running Linux and Docker as soon as possible, right? So that is a big difference. And that is the biggest change, obviously, SQL Server running on Linux, running on Docker containers. There are some compelling features inside the engine, regardless of the operating system that it's running from. Like, for example, the automatic plan regression detection that will you know, automatically see if a query starts to behave badly and go back to a previous plan if the previous plan actually gives better results in terms of performance, right? So that's a pretty cool feature and it's a cool feature because it just keeps adding much more of these automated and, uh, and intelligent capabilities in the product, right? Do you have a favorite feature with SQL 2017? So one of the things that's uh, evolving to me is machine learning in SQL. That to me is something that's going to grow in the future because of the volumes of data that need to be looked at by data scientists is going to continue to evolve. So that to me is going to be, to me is a, that new feature that's coming out of 2017 where the, they're allowing you to run script within the 
within the SQL engine is going to evolve that, that part of the business. And, and you're going to see data scientists skipping over working with data programs. They're going to go directly into the SQL data lakes and get all this information back and then visualizes these in, in Power BI. So to me, that's a new powerful feature that's coming through from SQL 2017. Being able to do that, someone, some of the demonstrations that they were doing at Ignite was they actually showed, you know, going through millions of photographs and then coming out with valuable data for customer segmentation, which is, I think, is a powerful tool for a lot of these e-commerce sites that are going to be working on this type of data going forward. So how does SQL 2017 enable this for the data scientists? So what they've done is they've allowed you to put in Python, R language on top within the SQL scripting instead of having to do it externally. So this speeds up the processing time instead of having to go in a roundabout circle where the data scientists would have to go to developers and then come back and forth. They streamline that process by giving the data scientists the tools within SQL to look at all of that data. So previously, if, let me just take you and give you an example. You would have this, you know, weeks or months process where you go from data scientists to developers and then back and forth. And the model that they put together had changed over that time. So they, they keep going through this process and it sort of took weeks and months to do it. Versus having to do this with data scientists going into the data lakes of this information and pulling out this information with the, you know, the R language built into SQL now. So this is going to stream out that process. Instead of taking weeks and months, it'll take hours. So that's going to make it a lot more efficient for data scientists to work with this data. The net effect of this is, you know, all of these different e-commerce type of platforms that are trying to do data segmentation for customers can now do this a lot quicker, a lot faster. So those are the type of things that is going to evolve over time. Okay. Now, it's, there were other machine learning announcements out of uh, Ignite, something about Azure machine learning. Is that different from machine learning in 2017? Yeah, so the Azure machine learning is, is for creating models in the cloud, and you evaluate data against your models in the cloud, right? So it is, it is completely different. On-prem on, on SQL 2017, you can run any R or Python script against the data, which is what Sunil was saying. And not only does it improve, like what Sunil was saying, it really improves the, the developer experience for the data scientists, but also they have tweaked some of the libraries so that they actually take advantage of the more powerful hardware that are usually sitting in, uh, databases are sitting on, right? So some of the uh, R modules, I'm, I don't remember which ones, but some of them, they have rewritten them so that they run multi-core in parallel compared to just being single core implementations, like if you were running R on your desktop, right? So you would expect as well, not only that it's easier and the developer flow is easier, but the performance itself should be better because you're running them there in parallel next to the data, right? In the cloud is the, the designer, the, the machine learning piece is not just running R or Python scripts, even though you can, but it's really a, it's a visual designer and you can start with your inputs for your experiments. You can drag different algorithms and then you can compare the outputs of the different algorithms and see if one is actually more accurate than the other. And it also allows to save those models. You can source control them. So it, it really puts a, a really nice developer framework on on the data science process, which a lot of the times has been, as, as far as I my conversations go with people that do data science for a living, it's been very fragmented. 
and they've actually made like a really nice tool set that you can just go in and adopt and it kind of like holds you all the way from experimenting to actually operationalizing your experiments on machine learning. Okay. And are those, is there any extra licensing required for the Python or the R modules? Mm -hmm. For for the SQL 2017, I think the parallel modules on R are an enterprise feature. Okay. So it's an okay. So not included in the standard edition. Yeah, I think standard you can run R, you can run Python, but I don't think you can use those parallel libraries that Microsoft created. But I could be wrong. I'm you know I'm not a licensing expert. Yeah, licensing is its own <laughs> science, and I've never been interested in it either. So what about Cosmos DB or Azure Functions? Were there any relevant announcements about those? So the cool thing there is about the serverless compute, right? Serverless is coming and it's coming in a big way. So I think that's where those two are really going to take off as well next year. The more people develop more serverless, then obviously functions is, is the biggest driver of serverless is the way you do it in Azure. And then Cosmos just really ties up really nicely to it. Right, right. And we did a whole episode with Mike Roberts on um, serverless computing, a really interesting trend. And it'll be interesting to see how the enterprise deals with all these functions sitting out there in the, in the, in the cloud, sending in, a, you know, little bills, <laughs> which could add up. I, I personally, I, th I think there could be a management uh, nightmare and there's certainly a niche to manage the, uh, the functions as a service that are sitting out there, but <laughs> that'll, the only time will tell. One of the themes out of the uh, Oracle Open World uh, Conference was security. And security is, you know, very much on our many uh, IT workers and consumers' minds right now with uh, what, what has gone on with the Equifax data breach uh, affecting almost half of the uh, American public. What did uh, Microsoft have to say about security at the conference? So security is on top of mind for Microsoft. Even in how they do the upgrades for their SQL platforms, they don't want to, they only will not break your uh, applications unless they have a security flaw and they have to, they have to fix that. So that's the first and first and thought process is security, security, security. That's the first thing. They're bringing out tools to what I call security vulnerability assessment tools, which then can look at your, your platform, your setup and detect where are the possible spaces that need to be covered that are uncovered in your in your security platform of your you know whether you're sql on-prem or sql on azure these are things that need to be looked at uh, thought of and they're they're bringing in tools to part and parcel i mean microsoft's azure platform security is top notch yeah the vulnerability assessment is uh, going to be uh interesting to see what type of recommendations you get that's what i want to try out because sometimes we do uh try out these services and you kind of see the recommendations are kind of funky so i am i'm eager to try and hopefully see the quality of good recommendations and the cool thing about it is that the assessment service is you can run it against on-prem sql servers so it's not just for azure sql DB, but it opens up for uh, sql servers as well the only other bit too about security, I mean, we've said this a million times before, is that probably any cloud data center is more secure than any of our clients' actual data centers because, you know, they have a lot more money, a lot more controls. But, you know, it's just perception that, you know, putting stuff in the cloud is less safe than having it in my own server room. But Microsoft really is trying to make people feel, you know, feel comfortable with it. Uh, they do have, like, all these certifications, like Sunil says, 
a lot of cloud providers also have them. But another thing that I've, uh, I've found is that uh, nowadays it's Azure SQL DB is encrypted at rest by default. Cosmos DB is encrypted at rest as well. And it's no longer a, um, something that you turn on. It is on by default, right? So, so that in itself is also a, a valuable, I think, a valuable move to just show that, look, even if you don't, not asking for it, it doesn't matter. We're giving you encryption at rest. It's no longer, basically, it's no longer a feature. It is now just a permanent thing. Things are encrypted at rest, period, right? right. It's kind of like, you know, ACs in a car, like, you know, maybe 20 years ago, it was like, it's not a feature anymore. You don't sell a car without an AC, right? Right, right. So let's shift the focus to data warehousing. There was an announcement about Azure Data Factory version two. What's what's great about version two, Warner? What's new? Well, the, the thing here is that we have to take a step back just for, for uh, a couple of minutes and see where the full uh, end-to-end analytics and warehousing story was with, with Azure, right? So whenever you're thinking about doing a, a big platform project like this and any other cloud providers, what most people start to do is they start to plug all the different platform as a service pieces, right? So we're talking about using blob storage, we're talking about using Azure SQL Data Warehouse, and then we're talking about using uh, Azure Data Factory. But the thing is, version one of Azure Data Factory, the one that they're replacing right now, was very bare bones in terms of capabilities. So what was happening was that people would go in, they would do this study of architecture and the pieces they were gonna plug in, and a lot of the times they were finding out that what they ended up doing was running SSIS on a VM because ADF wasn't really a proper ETL tool. ADF, for example, didn't have a conditional control flow. ADF v1 didn't have a data flow uh, transformations on the fly. It was more just like move something from A to B. So for many scenarios for ETL, it wasn't, it wasn't working. It was very cumbersome as well. So ADF v2 is trying to attack that and really become the true full ETL pass. It's going to have full control flow. It's going to have a visual designer. It's going to have data flow components that we're going to be able to put transformations in where the data is coming on the fly, just like we can do with SSIS. On top of that, it is actually also a hosted platform for SSIS now. So if somebody wants to just migrate their SSIS packages, they can have an agent on-prem to uh, resolve the connectivity and have the packages run in the cloud. So obviously, in, for a lift and shift scenario, this is going to be a big deal. But really, the strength is that ADF v1 was kind of like a not really there yet ETL tool. And ADF v2 is Microsoft really doubling down of, look, for a full data analytics end-to-end solution, we need to have solid solution for each piece. Blob storage is solid. Data warehouse is solid. ADF is not solid. That's unacceptable. We're releasing now the really where you know where we should have been uh, two years ago when ADF came out. Right, right. right. I, I was not very impressed with the first go at ADF, but yeah, with the so I had uh, a very narrow use case. Yeah. ADF v1 had a very narrow use case, which was basically tumbling windows of data that you just wanted to move from uh, point A to point B. This is going to be so much better. ADF v2 already, even now, just looking at the, at the preview right now, it's miles better than v1. And obviously, being cloud first is just going to get better over the next few months. Uh, and I'm pretty comfortable saying that probably in six months from now, all, all analytics architectures are just going to use ADF v2. Yeah, agreed, uh, especially cloud-based ones. And and you mentioned Data Warehouse. I'm a big fan of Azure uh, SQL DW. What was announced for that product? 
So SQLEW, they're doing something really interesting and is they're creating a kind of like a different flavor of DW called Compute Optimized. And this Compute Optimized is going to have uh, NVMe SSDs, is going to have a local cache, and it's going to have then the blob storage. And the whole point of this, these clusters, is that if you want to resize them, it's going to take a little bit longer than the regular ASDW clusters. But if your workload is really, really intensive, they're going to be a lot faster. So there's going to be a trade-off there. If you're okay with the performance you have now of the MPP system and you want to keep the really fast resize, then you can just use the regular ASDW cluster. But if you find that, look, I'm not resizing my cluster much and I want to pay for more power, then you're going to be able to do this compute-optimized cluster. And the big draw here is that because these are, are targeted towards people that are not going to be resizing their uh, clusters much, then as they use the cluster more, all those levels of cache are going to get filled up and are going to get warmer and warmer. Whereas, you know, by let's say a customer has been using the data warehouse for a week, then those NVMe SSDs on each one of those nodes is going to be packed with warm data, whereas there's going to be very little data that actually is going to be pulled from blob storage. Most of the data is going to be pulled from those NVMe SSDs, making it really, really fast, because it's going to be local NVMe SSDs tied to the nodes, which is something that a lot of people take against the original Azure DW scenario when they compare it to Redshift, because Redshift has local storage in the nodes. Right? And you can actually get you know, fast SSDs at that local storage. So people say, oh, yeah, well, ASDW, I can resize and I can pause it and all that, but my Redshift cluster, it's really a lot faster because it has local storage. So basically, this is kind of like an attack or a shoot at that, type of, at that type of scenario where it's like, well, we have two flavors now then. You want to have the local storage really fast and go with a compute-optimized cluster for ASDW, or you want to have just a you know, the regular performance cluster that scales up and down really quickly, well, then we have that too. I think this is great for ASDW. And it also is good because you can't do this on-prem. That's really what the cloud needs. The cloud needs more killer apps that you can't do on-prem. Because if you if you can just do the same thing on-prem, what's the point of putting it in the cloud, right? We need we need the, the real justification. This is This is that kind of thing where it's like, you're not gonna have, for the same set of data, you're not gonna have two different sets with hardware for some use cases that you might have for some time of the year and a use case that I have for the rest of the year, right? That's that's the nice thing about this. On-prem, you will not be able to do it, right? So again, let's, these are this, for example, the Azure SQL database also has now the index automatic index recommendations that it, it learns through the use of uh, the database and then you can actually let it start tuning indexes up and down, things like this. Again, this is what the cloud needs. It needs killer apps that we just can't do on-prem. I agree. I agree. Were there any updates on the, along the lines of AI for Azure? Yeah, there's a big push for developers for AI. So they are releasing uh, more capabilities for what they call the cognitive APIs, which is all the, the APIs that you can just consume to do OCR, text uh, processing, image processing, sentiment analysis. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? You can just go in, plug into any of these APIs, pass your data through, and you get the results back. They improve them all the time. They they train them with Microsoft's data sets, which obviously are ginormous compared to what you 
would be able to train your own if you wanted to do that, but why would you want to do that anyway, right? Cortana is coming out with uh, this really cool idea of uh, an SDK for what they call Cortana skills, which is actually really interesting. So this is basically a way to for any developer to come up with Cortana to respond to a particular type of conversation. So let's say, for example, if I'm Pythian and I want to develop a Cortana skill for Pythian customers. So we could say, you know, you're a Pythian customer and uh, we're going to send you a plugin for Windows 10 and you just have to install it and that's it. And then after you have that plugin, you can just go into your Cortana chat thingy there on Windows 10 and just say, Cortana, I have an issue, I need to open a ticket with Pythian. And you could automatically open the Pythian website, log the client in and just put them in front of like the ticket. Or say, Cortana, I, I'm, you know, I need to check my uh, Pythian resource usage this month. And same thing, you could open it and go directly to their report and show everything, right? So this has a lot of potential for anybody that just wants to make it that type of experience available, they're gonna have an SDK so that any, any company basically can just come up with uh, their own little Cortana conversation reactions type of thing. So it's pretty cool, pretty cool. We'll see how it gets, uh, if it gets uh, traction, it gets adoption. Right, that sounds really cool. Although I have to put on my uh, IT administrator hat here for a second and say the potential for abuse for that is phenomenally good. Well, <laughs> but if you're the IT admin, then you, you don't have to, you don't have to allow people to install things that they're not supposed to, right? Well, if I you're think you in have a, to prevent you're in, a, in a corporate control laptop, let's say. Right? Yeah, well, yeah. It, it, this is something that administrators need to be on the on the on the lookout for. I mean, I could take my spammy w uh, website uh, that looks like some other site and uh, you know install all kinds of interesting Cortana shenanigans. Oh, yeah. well, and and the that thing, the problem today, right? it does, but the difference is that looks like Windows. It will look no, no, very much like Windows, right? The Cortana skills, it's integrated into Windows. It's nothing new, right? That's the nice thing. The same Cortana that will give you the weather, you tell her to open a ticket of Pythian with That's you, right? my point. That's that's my yeah. exact point. So it's going to look exactly like, you know, you get those, oh, yeah. uh, you, you say you go to badwebsite.com oh, yeah, and it's yeah, got yeah, a so silly like, looking okay. box and you can pick it out. You could say, okay, well, this so, isn't a real text oh, box, yeah. right? So somebody, somebody <laughs> like hacks into your Cortana and adds a, a yeah. conversation skill for a fake bank account. And you're like, Cortana, I want to check my balance. And it actually sends you to the fake website, whatever. Well, yeah, yeah. but this is the, the same danger that you get with anything, right? That's like getting your DNS spoofed. And you put in, you know, Google.com and you ended up on like a page that looks like Google, but it's actually somebody yeah. in Russia. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, cool, cool stuff. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. It is a big push for developers to really drive these, what Microsoft calls the intelligent type of application experience. Yeah. Right? Oh, and, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not, I, I'm just being uh, somewhat facetious. I, I'm very excited about, like, I like the Cortana and Office 365 integration. And I like those features, but I, you know, I, I always see, I often look at the potential for abuse too, and think about how can we um, secure our systems. So uh, very, that's very cool stuff. I, I, I love, I love that. Um, as you guys know, I recently broke my finger, so I've been getting very familiar with dictation software and yeah, uh, yeah. my different uh, PCs, and and I'm I'm really addicted to it. I don't like Alexa. My my parents have it, and uh, drives me crazy. But the dictation software is, you know, it's something uh, even after my, my hand heals and I can type again, it's something I'm going to keep around because it's very addictive. And I can see how it could creep into other things. You know, I mean, how far away from, uh, you know, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that with how. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. 
chatbots chatbots are here to stay too right soon we're gonna have uh you know one of them is gonna pass the turing test you're gonna think it's some call center guy and it's actually a chatbot right yeah yeah absolutely what what about uh, so I mean I think we've done a pretty good job of covering the conference but uh, uh you know, may have missed something or were there any other announcements that either of you guys wanted to mention? There's one thing that we haven't mentioned and it is the super speculative science fiction mention of quantum computing on the Satya's <laughs> keynote. So. First of all, we, we know that quantum computing is the thing. Intel actually is, has a lab for it. Obviously, Microsoft is investing on it. But what is very, very up in the air is what is a reasonable or realistic time frame in which somebody will have a functioning quantum computer? Is it going to be 10 years? Is it going to be 20 years? Is it going to be 30 years? So I find it really, really fascinating that they decided to make that a really prominent part of the keynote. Because, you know, why are we mentioning a keynote something that is very unlikely that is going to be commercialized or be mainstream in at least less than 10 years, right? That's being generous. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe they know something that we don't know. Yeah. Well, well they, I'm sure they know lots of things we don't know, but yeah. uh, fair enough. Uh, what about you, Sunil? Was there anything else that you wanted to mention that came out of the conference? Some interesting things that they're they're coming through with new cost management services coming out with their Cloudine uh, acquisition. I think that might be very interesting to see where that goes in cost comparing uh, different cloud services. So I think that's going to be a new, it's something just got announced. We'll see where it goes. I think that's going to be very competitive to see the, you know, price comparisons between three different platforms. That's going to be an awesome uh, comparison tool that Microsoft will be able, be able to provide to end users and to say, you know, we're, we're going to give you the best bang for the buck as uh, our systems and keep involving from CPU, storage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a good one. I mean, costs often come up when we discuss the public cloud. So uh, definitely. A and good, and the, uh, interesting, the interesting thing about cloud and like the cloud and like uh, Sunil was saying is that Microsoft bought it. They've integrated it into Azure. But the service, you can give it your AWS and your GCP credentials, and you can use it as your single pane of glass for cloud cost. So if you have more than one cloud environment, it integrates with AWS and GCP as well. So it, it's very, very interesting because, I mean, you know, it's not just for Azure, really. It's You can build a dashboard that has your AWS costs next to your Azure costs, next to your GCP costs. That can backfire too. What if I start seeing that my GCP costs are lower than my <laughs> Azure costs, right? So very, very interesting. Very, very cool, I think, that uh, they're they're going all in with this. I was reading the other day that Microsoft, Microsoft, Facebook, and I don't remember what, what other co the third company was. They, they just finished building the biggest transatlantic cable that goes from Virginia to a coast in Spain biggest capacity cable that exists in the world for transatlantic communication. Man, this this cloud thing, they're pouring billions on it. I, I really hope it pays off. <laughs> but uh, but they're really doubling down on the on on their bet. And I think and I think the market also recognizes it. I mean Microsoft has been doing great on on their stock for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Um, yeah. All right. Well I we need to I think we've covered uh, the, the the conference fairly well. So 
Sunil, since you're the new new fellow on the show, we're going to pick on you with uh, what we call the lightning round. We have okay. uh, we've hit Warner with the lightning round at least once, and I'm actually because of Warner, I'm even crafting some new questions. So uh, you're you're not safe. I will get you on a future episode. Uh, however, Sunil, we, I do this thing called the lightning round. And that's where we get to know each guest a little bit better, what their work style is and, and whatnot. And I'm going to ask you a series of questions where you answer, give the uh, short answer, but the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. What project are you the most proud of? Project, most proud of. Okay. So many of them. But let's say doing a, a migration of 100,000 users where the end user base didn't even know the the migration took place. They said the systems were moved from one platform to the next, and then they didn't even know that there was an upgrade that was done. And that was uh, from the district uh, supervisor for this uh, school board for 100,000 users. That was a, a great project. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's that's awesome. <laughs> Could you name a book that it has that has made a significant impact on your career? I'm going to just answer this in a little question. I actually think the MSDN subscription is the best value and the, the information I get from that is the best value I've had over the years. The stuff that I get on MSDN, it, to me, is the, the best value I've seen as it evolves time over time. I've, I've had a lot of books, a lot of different things. I've even authored about ADO, ADO.net, but I just, I'm just i just going to change that to a little say, keep, to keep myself current, MSDN subscription is the best. Uh, this is why I ask these questions. Um, everybody, okay. I'm frequently surprised with uh, at least one answer per interview. So good one. Standing or sitting desk? Uh, sitting. Okay. Laptop or desktop? I use a laptop with a connected monitor. Okay. Mac or PC? PC. Okay. Lenovo. iPhone, Android, or say Windows Phone? iPhone. All righty. Definitely iPhone. Yep. What is the best tool or app that you use on a daily basis and it can't be MSDN? <laughs> best tool or app, uh, Office 365. Okay. Oh, good one. I'm sure Microsoft's check will be in the mail <laughs> for endorsing <laughs> that. If people are interested in, in knowing more about you or following you, uh, where can they find you? I'm going to be posting some blogs and posts, and we'll, we'll hook this up with the podcast, which will give you my links to. I do stuff on LinkedIn. I'll do stuff on 15.com, and we'll give you these links after the podcast. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, folks, you can check the show notes. I'll, I'll include them there. And Warner, where can people find and follow you, sir? Yeah, so people can follow me at Warchav on Twitter. That's W-A-R-C-H-A-V. They can check out my personal blog at SQLTurbo.com or they can check my material at Pythian.com's blog. By the way, we have a lot of stuff there in our Pythian blog, not just Microsoft, but really covering all of the data spectrum industry. Okay, good stuff. Well, that's all the time we had today, folks. What did you think of today's podcast? What would you like to know more about or, or hear about? Um, we love feedback, and you can uh, send that feedback to datascapepodcast at gmail.com. And remember, the biggest compliment you can give us is by telling a friend where to find us or writing a review on iTunes. That's all we have for today. Thank you, and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape. 